Heavenly Father, you have given us the greatest gift. You have promised it from long ago and it has been fulfilled in Christ Jesus. This morning, as we dive into your word, fill us. Fill us with your joy, your love, your grace, your mercy. Lift us up by the Holy Spirit, all to the glory of Jesus Christ, our Lord and Savior. Thank you, gracious God. Amen. It's been quite the Advent journey that you and I have been on the past few weeks here. It has been a journey full of promises. We've heard a lot of promises from the Old Testament, then fulfilled in the New Testament. There was a promise of righteousness, a promise of purity, a promise of great love, of salvation, of everlasting joy. And these promises that were given in the Old Testament and fulfilled in Christ Jesus were not Hallmark movie promises for our Hallmark movie world, were they? They aren't. They're very real promises that deal with a sin-sick world. These are the type of promises that God has given us in Christ Jesus. And these are the promises that fulfill what is needed for us, for the people who have been in darkness, now who see a great light. And because these promises are from God himself, the foundation of those promises is unshakable, and they are eternal in nature. So today, we've perhaps saved, I think, the best promise for last in our Advent journey. It is the promise of Emmanuel, God with us. And as I was preparing last night and going over the notes and everything, I was struck by the depth and breadth of these promises that start in Genesis and go the, all the way through Revelation. So if you hear today some of those passages that I talk about, notice that the promises of Emmanuel, God with us, are throughout the entire Bible. So, Emmanuel, God with us. It is a promise of God to do what we cannot do. That's the promise. Emmanuel, God with us, is a promise of God to do what we cannot do. So to understand that, we're going to go with our text. Our text today is from Isaiah chapter 7. It speaks about the refusal of God. Again, the Lord spoke to Ahaz, Ask a sign of the Lord your God. Let it be as deep as Sheol or high as heaven. But Ahaz said, I will not ask, and I will not put the Lord to the test. So the context of the verses, the context of our whole lesson day is quite important. And I am going to give you a Cliff Notes version of it. We can't just skim over it, but you're going to at least get the Cliff Notes version of the context for this. So let's first talk about Ahaz. Ahaz was the king in Jerusalem, but he was not a good king. He was an evil king. As a matter of fact, 
how evil he was is written in 2 Kings chapter 16. I've given just part of one of the verses here on the screen, but let me read to you a larger section of it. Ahaz was 20 years old when he began to reign, and he reigned 16 years in Jerusalem, and he did not do what was right in the eyes of the Lord his God, as his father David had done. But he walked in the way of kings of Israel. He even burned his son as an offering, according to the despicable practices of the nation whom the Lord drove out before the people of Israel. And he sacrificed and made offerings on the high places and on the hills and under every green tree. Now look, there's a lot more that we could say about Ahaz and how evil and despicable he was. But I think the one example that he actually burned his son as an offering to a pagan god should speak about how evil he was. And by the way, when it talks about he didn't walk as his father David did, didn't do as his father David, this is not talking about his immediate biological father. It's actually referencing 300 years earlier King David, so the line of King David, that's what it's referencing. But Ahaz was not good. But there is more to this context that you also need to understand. So the nation of Assyria was starting to encroach in this area. Now, if you were a part of any of the Bible studies in Jonah, I talked about how nasty the Assyrians were. And you know what? As evil as Ahaz was in burning his son, the Assyrians were much worse. So you had this awful enemy starting to encroach. And you had two particular nations, Syria and Ephraim. Ephraim also we would now call the nation of Israel, but there were many different tribes and nations at that time. Anyway, so they said, hey, we want to stop the Assyrians. And they spoke to Ahaz's biological father, so right before him, the king. But he said, no, I'm not going to join forces with you. Ahaz said, no, I'm not going to join forces with you. So you had Syria and Ephraim combining forces to overthrow Ahaz, to kill him and overthrow Jerusalem so that then they could fight against the Assyrians. Did you get that? A lot of political, a lot of military machinations, you would call it. And if you think our time and our politics and our military and things going around the world are really bad today, it's been that way for thousands of years. Things really haven't changed. So that's the context. That's the Cliff Notes version. And you have to understand how bleak, how dark, how dangerous a time this was, especially for Ahaz and Jerusalem. And the Lord had actually gone to Ahaz through Isaiah and warned him already. But Ahaz didn't do anything, did he? So we get to now, now listen again to the text. Again, the Lord spoke to Ahaz, ask for a sign of the Lord your God. Let it be as deep as Sheol or as high as heaven. But Ahaz said, I will not ask. I will not put the Lord to the test. That word again struck me. 
because it is again and again and again and again and again that the Lord comes to us in our need. I mean, he calls out to us and says, call upon me. In our darkness, in our fear. And look how gracious he is being to Ahaz, who did not deserve any graciousness whatsoever. He says, ask for a sign. Ask as, as deep as the grave or as high as heaven. And yet with all of that graciousness, Ahaz still refused, didn't he? I think it's quite the commentary on our relationship with God. You know, it, it continues to amaze me how people, when they are at their very lowest, will still refuse to take the help that is offered them. I mean, this past week, I received a call from a member of our community, not our church, a member of the community, just out of the blue. And this person uh, is going to be homeless in two weeks. And I said, hey, I've got a bunch of different resources to give you. And I gave this person resources that are there for the taking. But this person refused, especially when it came to some of the shelters, because they said, well, they didn't want to be with other people who weren't Christians and had no hope. And I was thinking, you're going to be homeless here. Uh, it amazes me. I've de dealt with people with addictions, and they are so addicted to their addictions, to everything else, that they actually won't take the help that's offered. And I think that actually speaks to our condition as well. I really do. That somehow we don't reach out to God because we think by ourselves we can do it. We don't want to bother God. Let's just, let's get our life right first and then we'll ask God of something. I think a lot of people do that. We refuse to accept what the Lord provides because we think we can somehow do it ourselves. You know, there are people who are atheists who say, well, I don't need God. God is just a crutch. Marx said, uh, what, that religion is an opiate of the masses. And people will go down this particular road saying, I don't need God. I'll figure it out yourself. And I want to, what does Dr. Phil say? Something like, how's that working for you? Doesn't he say, say, say I mean, really, with these people, I say, how's that working for you? And it's not, is it? So it is God who makes that move because we don't. On our own, we ultimately will refuse God. So God is still gracious. And he told Ahaz, you know what? I'm going to give you two signs. I'm going to give you a sign of a virgin who will bear a son. And the sign of that son, his name is Emmanuel. So let's talk about the sign of the virgin bearing the son. Again, he said, and this is the Lord speaking, Hear then, O house of David, is it too little for you to weary men that you weary my God also? Therefore, the Lord himself will give you a sign. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son and shall call his name Emmanuel. So the first sign is that a virgin will conceive 
and bear a son. Now, there's a lot of people who deny that the virgin conception and the virgin birth took place. They will say, oh, just take a look at Isaiah. And the word for virgin in Isaiah could actually just mean young maiden. So it probably wasn't. Mary probably wasn't a virgin. She was just a young maiden. And because she was just a young maiden, it was probably a cover-up, right, for a sexual indiscretion that she had. But let's let Scripture interpret Scripture, shall we? If we take a look at the Gospel of Matthew, the Gospel of Matthew says that she conceived by the power of who? The Holy Spirit. She conceived by the power of the Holy Spirit that she did not know a man. And then if you take a look at the Gospel of Luke, Mary's, Mary's going to get this, got this uh, revelation from Gabriel. You're going to bear a son. And she said, how can that be? I am a virgin. And literally, in the Greek, it means I have known no man. So let's just put it to rest, shall we? That if we let Scripture interpret Scripture, and certainly let the New Testament interpret the Old Testament, Mary was without doubt a virgin. But you might be saying, well, what's the big deal out of all this? Does it really matter in our understanding of Jesus if she wasn't a virgin? And the answer is yes, it matters a lot. Why? Why does it matter? It matters because a sinless Savior was needed. It matters that Mary conceived by the power of the Holy Spirit because a sinless Savior was needed. Now, you might be thinking, well, I understand the sinless Savior part, but how does that tie in with Mary at all? Well, here we have to have an understanding of Scripture. Because of Adam, right? Everybody remembers Adam. Because of Adam and his sin, we all have inherited his sin. It's what we call the doctrine of original sin. From Adam, from his seed, passed on down, we are all sinners. So in Romans chapter 5, verse 12, it says, Therefore, just as sin came into the world through one man, and death through sin, and so death spread to all men, because all sinned. So if Mary had conceived from Joseph, the original sin would certainly have been passed down. But she did not, did she? She conceived by the power of the Holy Spirit. And thus he was conceived without sin and lived a complete and full life without sin. And thus ensuring that we could be saved from our sin. You know, Isaiah's prophecy, did Isaiah know all or understand all of this? No, he didn't understand all of this. He was thinking the prophecy was really about the child for the sin of the Assyrians, for the sin of Syria, for the sin of Ephraim, for the sin of Ahaz and Jerusalem. And there would be redemption through this child. And that was certainly fulfilled. But there was a greater promise fulfilled here. That was a type 
of fulfillment, it is completely fulfilled in Christ Jesus. Because 700 years later, Isaiah's prophecy, a child would be born who would take care of the sin of the world. And his name, his name is one of God, from God, unto us. His name is Emmanuel. That means God with us. God with us. Three small words. But if you want to encapsulate Christmas in three words, that is it. God with us. And we must take a look at these three words. The first word we are going to start with with is God, because God and his name is tossed about so carelessly and so blasphemy, blasphemy, I can't say it, but you get it, in such a way that is so disrespectful, it is unbelievable. So what do we mean when we say God? When we say God, we mean one who is above all things. By the very power of his word, he said, let there be. And there was. He is above all things. When we say God, we speak of one who is eternal and self-existent. He has no beginning and no end. And this is impossible for us to actually fully comprehend because how can the finite grasp the infinite? He is eternal, self-existent. He always has been and always will be. I've said this many times before, but I want you to ground yourself in Exodus chapter 3 when Moses said, all right, you want me to go? Tell the Pharaoh, let my people go, right? And the Israelites are going to say, well, who sent you? This is what it says. God said to Moses, I am who I am. And he said, say this to the people of Israel. I am has sent me, has sent me to you. I am. Not I was, not I will be, but I am eternally. When we speak of God, we speak of the immeasurable holiness of God. One who's so pure and holy that Moses, when he was there around the burning bush, God said, take off your sandals for the very place here, which I am, is holy ground. One who is so holy that when he sits on the throne... The angelic creatures around the throne say together in unison, holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty who was and is and is to come. When we speak of God, we speak of one whom nothing is hidden. There are no secrets in the world. He knows everything, even our very hearts, which should give us fear. But when we say God, we say, one who is love itself. His steadfast love endures forever. And we cover this, it is beautifully covered in our study that we did this past summer in Ruth, the whole sermon series about God's hesed, 
his love, his steadfast, compassionate, merciful, gracious love. As the psalmist says, his love endures forever. His steadfast love endures forever. So when we say God, we speak with a reverence and awe that who was born that night in a manger? God, divine. And so we should, as the song says, fall on your knees. Oh, hear the angels, hear the angel voices. Oh, night, divine. O night when Christ was born. O night, O night divine. Night divine. God. God with us. And we must dive deep into this one as well. God with us. When we say God with us, it speaks of God who is imminent. It is not a God who is simply far off. Some God simply out there with almost all other religions have a God somewhere out there. Islam certainly has a transcendent God, but he is not a close personal God. Other religions have a God who is out there, but they say, I don't even know how I could know God. But God is not far off out there. He is here with us, with us. He became flesh, and he lived, breathed, ate, slept, laughed, and wept, as we do. He experienced both the joys and sorrows, as we do. He knows us. God with us. As it says in, first, in John chapter 1, verse 14, the Word became flesh and dwelt among us. The Word, Jesus, God, did not cease to be what he was before, but he became what he was not before, flesh and blood. I mean, that's the, the wonder of the incarnation, the mystery of the incarnation. God became flesh and dwelt among us. But what does it mean to dwelt among us? I mean, was he dwelling over there, but not here? Because this word dwelt, I've covered this before, but it bears repeating. This word dwelt in the original language means tented or tabernacled. The word became flesh and tabernacled among us. Well, how do you understand that? Did Jesus come and camp out with us? That's not the meaning. See, remember, going back to, to Exodus, the Israelites were in the desert, and they had a tent of meeting, or we would call a tabernacle, right? And that tabernacle was the very center of the Israelites' encampment. And at the very center of the Israelites' commandment in the tabernacle, there was both the holy place and the holy of holies, and it was only the high priest to go, go into the holy of holies once a year. God would be present there at the tabernacle, but not everybody had access. 
But now God, Jesus, Emmanuel, the Word became flesh and tabernacled among us. And so we have God who is there with us no matter where we are. This is the meaning of the word dwelt. But why? See, that's the question. You've got to ask why. Why would Jesus come to us? And the answer is this. God came to us because we cannot on our own come to him. I've said this before, but it's, it's from the very beginning. Do you remember when Adam and Eve sinned? What was their first reaction? They hid from God, right? They hid from God to cover up their shame. And so God called out to them. He said, where are you? It's not that he didn't know where they are, but he called to them. Yet they continued to hide from him. And it has been that way ever since in our shame, we continue to hide from God. God, he again and again and again comes to us. He calls to each one of us. You see, if you take a look at the Bible, the main message of the Bible is not about the desire of man to be with God. It's about the desire of God to be with man. Think about how wicked Ahaz was, right? He was as wicked as you can imagine. God could have simply written him off, said, you know what? Too bad. Too bad. You're on your own. But he didn't. And why? Because of his steadfast love. Because of his love. And you and I want to compare ourselves to Ahaz. I know that. And we want to say, well, I'm not as bad but yet, in many ways, we are. And so God came to us. Emmanuel, Jesus, God with us. See, maybe, maybe for this Christmas, maybe that's all you, you, you ponder, right? You take into your heart, God with us. He came to me even though I refused him. He sought me out, even though I was dead in my sin. God with us. And the promise is that evil will be destroyed from him, and there is a blessing of good that comes from those who have faith in him. Let's just take a look at the last few verses here. Isaiah chapter 7, verse 15 and 16. He shall eat curds and honey when he knows how to refuse the evil, and choose the good. For before the boy knows how to refuse the evil and choose the good, the land whose two kings you dread will be deserted. There's more to this prophecy, sorting it all out. It's a little bit more difficult. Uh, I'm going to just make it easy for us. First of all, when it says curds and honey, you can think even butter. Butter and honey, staples of those area. And for the boy to be able to grow up, and to reach that level of maturity, of understanding good and evil, would have been about 12 years. So there's, there's a, a prophecy for Isaiah, his time, about what would happen. And the prophecy is really about this more than anything. Just take this away. The child 
who is to be born is a sure sign that there is a destruction of evil and those who oppose God, but a blessing of all that is good for whom the Lord favors. So again, did Isaiah know all, all about this? No, he didn't. This was actually fulfilled in Christ Jesus, who didn't start to know good and evil later on. He knew it from the very beginning because he was without sin. And so our sinless Savior, who lived a life of all good, died for the destruction of all that is evil. You know, I told you at the beginning, it goes from all the way to uh, from Genesis to Revelation. Let's go to Revelation now for just a moment. Revelation chapter 21. Because this is the promise. Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth. For the first heaven and the first earth had passed away and the sea was no more. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them and they will be his people and God himself will be with them as their God. That's the promise. And we find that promise fulfilled and made complete in who? Jesus. And what is his name? Emmanuel. God with us. This is the promise of Advent. This is the promise of Christian. This is a promise for you and I this very day. So this before, so we just have a few days before Christmas, right? Before Christmas Eve. Do this, please. Ponder the signs that were given to us. The virgin birth and Emmanuel, God with us. How do these signs apply directly to you? Not to other people, but to you. How do these signs affect how you praise and worship Jesus? And how do these signs guide your life? If you do this this week, you will have a much, much richer Christmas Eve. And all the people said, Amen. Amen.